My name is David, and this is The Big Shut-In. <sighs> so, it is Saturday, um, April 18th, and I just had to pull up a calendar and count, um, but it is the 35th day um, that I have been shut in here with my family. Um, that's a long time. Anyway, it was a weird day today. They're all weird days. Um, but it was, it was, um, it's a funny one. I, last night I was just dark. I was feeling like anxious and just the, the news of the world was, was really weighing heavily on me. And I was, I was feeling kind of sick to my stomach over it. And, um, just kind of not, not able to handle much. I canceled an interview, uh, that I was supposed to do for this just cause I couldn't, I just, I didn't have it in me. I didn't have it in me to talk to somebody, um, try and draw them out. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to be out myself. I didn't want to draw myself out. And, um, and it was funny then today, you know, I got up and it was Saturday and I, you know, I often have to work on the weekends. I mean, I, I'm doing these, but I often have to do client work also. And, but I've been giving myself Saturdays off and just, you know, and I puttered around and, um, played with the kids and cooked. I did some baking and in the middle of that, a client called and wanted to talk about a project that he's trying to launch. And, you know, that we're trying to launch together. He's trying to get funding for, and I, he was in a really dark place today and, and somehow there was a weird kind of mental judo thing where his, his dark brought out my light and I was talking about optimism and it's going to be great. Like what, of course this is going to be, this, this project is going to be amazing and we're going to put the resources together and it's really going to be useful to people and it's going to be exactly what they need and it's going to, you know, and, and, and the funders are going to love it. And I was just bringing all this sunshine and, I could tell it was really inspiring him and, and it was really just what he needed to hear. And I just don't know where it, <laughs> it is just funny. I, it's something I do, I guess. And I realized that about myself in the moment that I tend to want to be a balancer, you know, energetically. If people are dark, I try and bring them up. And if people are like, yeah, everything's great. I'm like, everything's not great. You know, like, I don't know. I don't know why I want everyone to be, um, tepid and, um, unenthusiastic, but apparently that's my nature. Hooray. Anyway, look, the point is, the point is that that's, that's the roller coaster right now of, of this, like feeling blue, but also having the wherewithal to pull other people out of their blue. And I don't know. It's like, I've heard a couple of times about this show that, you know, man, I, I tried to listen to a couple episodes and it's so depressing. I'm like, yeah, maybe it is, you know, but I like, I like listening to sad songs. I like listening to the blues, you know, more skies of gray than any Russian play could guarantee. I, I like, um, there's something about hearing what other people are going through and hearing that they're managing it and hearing that they're, they're dealing with it and how they're dealing with it and that you're not alone. 
that everybody is having these ridiculous roller coaster days of highs and lows and weirdness and just reconfiguring everything every day that I don't know. I find them really helpful to do and I hope you're enjoying listening to them also. Anyway, tonight I talked to Dan London, who I had put off yesterday, but we jumped on today and Daniel is a historian who's been spending about the last five years working on his PhD in American history at NYU. He's somebody that I've collaborated with many times in the past. We did a little series on this very podcast network about New York City history. He's a very smart guy, a very intellectual guy, a very broad thinker, and and a very enthusiastic guy. The things he cares about, he cares about with kind of firecracker passion where he just, he'll get going and it goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and just the, the passion just pours out of him. And that's why I've always liked talking to him and, and he's, he's not in a good place today either. And I, I really, I found some things to say and I, I was happy to hear his story and where he's at and what he's thinking about and happy to try and help a little. Anyway, here's Dan. All right. You still there? Yep. You are live. <laughs> live, <laughs> live to tape. So how, how right. you doing, man? What's going on? Um, I'm doing okay. I mean, I feel like things have gone in a sort of uh, upward trajectory of both getting used to this and also it getting weirder. Like there's not a sense of growing resolution, but also not necessarily a downward sense either. It's, you know, I think uh, it's, it's generally I'm doing fine, but how I'm adapting is not going along with how the rest of the world is going. So increasing comfort at home, increasing weirdness outside. So how do you yeah, feel about that, that? Do you feel okay about that? Um, you know, it's been a little troubling in a lot of ways. So what's your situation right now? Where, where are you, where are you staying? Who's, who's there? How's it going? Like, what's up? Yeah, well, I'm here in uh, Brooklyn, uh, off in Bed-Stuy, close to the uh, Kingston Troop Stop. And we've, uh, really... You know, Steph, my my partner, has been prepping for this moment for a while. Not this specific moment, but this general sense that apocalypse is nigh, that things are going to get really bad. And she's been feeling this way for since November of 2016, but especially since last year. So, you know, in terms of the rhythms of how we're doing here, the sense of having a structure for getting food, for not going crazy at home by having enough things to do to keep us occupied with games and, you know, all the content Netflix can provide, you know, we're feeling not that stir crazy. It seems like there's a structure here. I think what's most unnerving for me at home has just been, uh, 
you know, my dissertation is about to be gone over by my committee. So I'm not sure how that's going to go. Uh, May 4th is when the decision day will happen. And also just the total collapse of the job market for, you know, what was going to be my line, which would be higher education. And, you know, NYU is suffering, but all over the country, it's really terrible in a situation that already wasn't great. So inside the house, you know, things longer range are a little up in the air, but in terms of me and my partner and my cat, we're doing okay. We're uh, finding new things to do, to learn. Uh, I'd say that where the real psychic damage is, is, you know, uh, I can see outside from my window a homeless shelter. And there was a time, not so much this past week, but there was a time when there were sirens there every single day. And the sirens were just converging on this one particular place. And it was just revealing the, on the one hand, just the enormous inequality of who is suffering from this. Uh, And on the other hand, so on the one hand, there's the sense of connection with what's going on. You know, this visceral, the visceral proximity of how the underserved in this community are paying the costs. On the other hand, though, there is this isolation. There's an insulation from the rest of the city. And I didn't think that was such a big deal, ironically, because when I was working in Wilmington, I was apart from the city, but I had this project that was really my entire focus that time. And now I'm a little more aware of how important it is for me to have a sort of spatial rhythm of getting out of my house, of being around different communities, whether it's just a library or an archive or a park or whatnot. And I'm sort of disconnected from that now. And having to sort of be my own center of gravity and bring in the values and people who I was able to, that I was able to encounter in the outside world and having to summon that inspiration internally, it's it's a little difficult. So I'm feeling a little cut off from sources of inspiration and uh, motivation a little bit. I was in a little bit of a productivity groove, not, you know, doing perfect pull-ups or anything, but, you know, I I felt a little momentum to fix up my resume to learn online courses, do grant writing. But now I'm actually getting back to some deeper kinds of inquiries. You know, I'm actually getting religion a little bit more and learning more about Judaism. I'm getting into some kind of philosophical reading I haven't read before just because I, I find there's a need to ground myself now in a way that before I was able to get it from these these places that I drew inspiration from. And uh, I'm a little more at sea at the moment. You uh, you never struck me as a particularly, I mean, you, you're obviously a very culturally Jewish and proudly culturally Jewish person and, and keyed into that as a, as a ethnic heritage. But I, you've never struck me as a particularly religious Jew. Yeah. Tell me. Well, I'm, I'm I'm still not entirely sure if it's if I would define it as religious, but 
becoming more, it's, it's one thing to be culturally Jewish in the sense of expressing mores or values that read as Jewish purely because of your, your, your coming out of that tradition. But does, it doesn't mean you're internally referencing that tradition. You're not attuned to that tradition in your day-to-day. It's just that you act it unselfconsciously. And I think what I'm doing a little more now is consciously reading about Jewish history, Jewish values, different movements like Reconstructionism, um, and I'm just becoming more aware of how um, Jews have tried to make sense of the difficulties in their lives um, by drawing on their own traditions. and. Um, you know, there's, of course, with Passover every year, that's sort of the agenda. The agenda is you pass over this story to a new generation, which needs to make sense of the present through the light of the past, and at the same time, interpret the past through the light of what's going on today. So this is an old approach. We always go back and forth, I think, but I'm just finding a need to reconstruct uh, this wealth of, um, of resources that I haven't felt a need to go back to. And again, I think it's because I'm a little more isolated now than I used to. And Draw that line um, for me. Why, why does being isolated make you turn? And I'm not sure if you're turning towards the ancestors or you're turning towards God, but what is, where exactly are you turning and why, why does the current situation make you make that be what you want, where you want to go? Yeah. Well, you know, I remember I was reading a story, I think it was by Philip Roth and he was saying how, you know, the, the Holocaust could have been avoided if all of the Jews had somehow found a way to convert or there had been some sort of decision that, you know, we give up our heritage. And there was something inside me that said, no, that there had to be some value in retaining whatever accidental heritage, you know, I've, I've inherited. And Everything else has seeming has fallen away. Not not everything else, but quite a lot has fallen away for me in terms of the verities. Um, to be honest, you know, Bernie Sanders lost. That was disappointing. Um, I've been away from DSA. That was a source of uh, political guidance for me. Um, even academia, you know, that sort of in question right now, depending on where things go in the future. And, you know, all these things come and go, but it is this kind of ambivalent knowledge that I'm going to be Jewish, uh, no matter what going through. And that's a place to start from. And, uh, you know, how I interpret what that means, even the extent to which I prioritize it or deprioritize it or not, that's going to be closer to me and than some of these other things, it seems. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not that deep into it by any means. At this point, I'm mostly just getting a lay of the land. I'm learning more about the movements, 
the individuals, Heschel, Mordecai, Kaplan. Um, but I'm, I'm getting a sense. I'm, I'm sort of creating a, uh, an entryway, a door into, um, developing a, a new reference point for, um, for establishing my values. I think what COVID is doing right now is it's uh, forcing me to um, go a little bit deeper into uh, my identity more than a lot of other things have. I think in the past, politics uh, or even culture has been my recourse and it's it's I, I can't go back to those as easily now it seems tell me more about what you're seeing in your own future in terms of I mean you've been working really hard for a long time towards an academic career um, towards your PhD which you're on the sounds like you're on the verge of of achieving you know could be could be weeks away right um, mm -hmm. congratulations by the way that's exciting right. to hand in your dissertation is a huge accomplishment that's amazing but thank you yeah oh. tell me more about that anxiety about not feeling as confident that you're going to be able to pursue that path that, yeah. that you've been on tell me more about that yeah well i mean i think for a lot of graduate students they're aware that the market has been bad for quite a while. And, you know, you, per, you pursue your interests through higher education um, because the thing is intrinsically interesting to you and because you feel like it'll make a difference. But within higher education, within, I should say, within the graduate training, there is a kind of narrowing that takes place also. And you get the sense that if you do anything other than get a tenure track position in an Ivy League school, let's say, you're falling short a little bit. Um, and as those sort of jobs, which were always difficult to get, you know, those are becoming foreclosed, but also the jobs that you know, even even jobs where you would hope to at least be able to teach in a college, you know, I think the anxiety is that there was this dream of all of my interests coming together around teaching, around writing, around service, around uh, research. And where those came together was to be a professor. And I know that I can take each of those sort of skills or interests and pursue them in other fields, right? But um, it's, it seems like I'm going to have to cobble together another kind of life to bring these things together, either by doing many jobs in sequence or doing several jobs sort of at once being sort of entrepreneurial about it, or maybe even, you know, it's exciting trying to, you know, make my own path, but there's this very powerful 
sense of unity of purpose around being a professor, about the professorship as a vocation. And to see that seem less likely, it requires a rethinking of what you want from a job. And um, in some ways it's, you know, you don't, you never want to put all your eggs in one basket. It's important to disabuse yourself of romanticizing that life regardless. But, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a sense of diminishment that comes from seeing that option for my, for me, uh, become less likely. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an academic, you know? Um, and so I don't, I guess I, it hadn't occurred to me really the fear you're talking about that. I mean, do you not think, I mean, we're, we're going to get out of this. <laughs> we're going to get out of quarantine eventually. We have to. And you don't think people are going to then, who wanted to go to college are going to go to college. You think it's because, because of people's economic situation will be different. I mean, do you think it's because the infrastructure won't yeah. hold? Like what, what is it exactly? What is your fear exactly? Well, I mean, I think what's going to happen out of this is just an acceleration of what's already been happening. You know, I don't think it's like I am hearing reports of colleges closing, of private colleges having to choose amalgamation to survive and uh, public colleges just closing branches. Um, You know, that's the most dramatic stuff recently. Um, Well, you know, I think the trends that, that are happening now are just, there's going to be more remote learning. Uh, and so a growth potentially of adjunctization, uh, which leads to not great work conditions, you know, not great pay, not great chance of advancement, any of those things. You know, I think that people in my position are going to, um, find other way, other ways of teaching, other ways of doing research, and they're going to find ways of making the most out of that situation. There already are things like that. Uh, the Brooklyn Institute of Social Research is one, you know, a bunch of grad students getting together and or P- recent PhDs teaching each other, teaching folks who want to shell out the money, not attached to a university. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, this could be, this could last quite a while. And people are talking about 2021, potentially keeping some colleges closed. And uh, to a certain extent, what I'm doing now is something that I've always tried to tell myself I do well, which is <laughs> worrying and trying to anticipate the worst and getting my and stealing myself for, you know, disillusionment later in this case around getting hired. Um, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned before uniquely Jewish perspective on dealing with catastrophe. <laughs> I, but truly, if there is one, anxiety and pessimism must must be cornerstone bricks of that of that edifice. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I was reading the other day about yeah, 
Judaism and neuroticism. And apparently there isn't a one-to-one, even when doing all the kinds of, you know, scientific, you know, regression for this kind of thing. But no, I, I do think that, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm reading, I was reading this, this great book uh, that just got reissued by Cynthia uh, Osnick called The Romance of American Communism. And it's about all these working class, not, not just Jews, but many working class Jews joining the Communist Party in the 30s through the 1950s. Uh, and, you know, what was keeping them, giving them a sense of, of hope while all this, this terrible thing was happening around them um, was a sense that, that history was on their side. And it's, and history was on their side precisely because things were so terrible, but that out of that terrible, out of this terrible situation, people were going to be forced to uncover the roots of what was driving this machine and get a better sense of how to take it on. And I was reading about the Jews and how there's the sense we're the chosen people. What a joke. You know, every generation we're singled out, certainly, by humans to try to, you know, wipe out or whatnot. But every generation of Jews, according to this one commentator, has felt that they were going to be the last. And it's going on and on and on. And um, the pessimism, um, the sense that it's just one thing after another, one thing after another, the fact that you can be alive and you can call on 2,000 years. If you, if you can call on 2,000 years of defeat huh. and still be around to talk about that, then you're, you're not doing that bad, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Judaism calling on 2000 years of defeat. That's yeah. fabulous. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's um yeah, there's a pessimism there, but it's 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 married to a sense of of stubborn we're going to bear we're going to bear it out, you know. And maybe that means and and also, I have to say one thing that I think gives me a little more courage as a Jew is the sense that we can leave this country. Like, I am not as nationalist. I, like, I've never been a nationalist, but I'm starting to sort of chip away a little bit the connection between Jewish and American. You know, maybe that sounds a little traitorous. Uh, but this sense that it's been in my folks heritage to leave the Ukraine, to leave Poland, to leave these countries when it wasn't fitting us. And that's not available to everybody, you know, and I don't want that to be this kind of privileged flight, you know, in the same way that folks from the Upper West Side are just hightailing it out. That can be irresponsible, but I don't know, there's something that's a little bit freeing about um, this is, this is a live option should things go a certain way.
And what are you, are you talking about going to Israel or something? Like, what, what exactly do you mean by that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, it could be it could be wherever Latin America, Canada. Uh, I have some relatives who live in Brazil, so that isn't looking so hot now. So, yeah, I don't. What know. you're saying is not that you you have a particular ability to leave. It's that you have an identity you could hold on to. That well, but it's an identity that gives me permission to leave. Like it's it's not like an English person or a French person can go to uh, Russia or China and feel that they're being fully French, I think, in the same way. I don't know. There's a connection between geography and peoplehood in other places that the Jews, I mean, it's, it's tricky because we feel very connected to our communities, maybe, or to New York City in my case, but it's, it seems a little more flexible. And I mean, the combination of COVID and the job market being what it is, um, it's, it's just making me a little more resigned to, to be open to what might happen. Um, not accepting, but just open to what I might do in response. That's what I mean. Does, does the lack of, and I, this is, here's an understatement, but the, the lack of, um, of uh, A-plus leadership from Washington in all of this situation and feeling, you mentioned before, you know, your sort of political disappointments lately. That Yeah, yeah. You know, that your, your, <laughs> your, your horse fell at the last hurdle. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and, you know, and the Democratic Party is taking a much more centrist turn than a lot of people hoped it would. And, and the, you know, I mean, does all of that conspire in what you're saying to make you feel less connected to the United States in a way? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I was, the fact that the president is screwing up now is not, uh, it's, it's, that's not exacerbating anything. You know, I, I'm not going to get outrage burnout from seeing what Trump is doing. I mean, it's disgusting, for example, you know, the bailout and how many people are going to get rich off this tragedy. Um, you know, I think what. I want to clarify that nobody's going to get rich off this tragedy. Well, people who are already rich are going to get richer. Fine. You're right. That's, that's a better way of putting it. You're right. <laughs> yeah. I think that, um, there, there's a sense of hostility from the democratic establishment, which is nominally supposed to be the opposition to Republican, the sense of hostility that the ideas I hold, the values that I want to see more of in politics, um, that I would be opposed, that it is this sense of, um, there's a narrowness that I feel uh, for what the space of acceptable discourse is in this country. And that's at least on the national level. I mean, there's plenty of places in New York, all these other liberal spots, whatnot, 
where you can see a bit more of that, let's say. But, you know, when you were following the election, there was earlier on this sense of openness. Oh, yeah, these, these people are coming out, they're voting. And I, on the one hand, I think it's a question of timing. Like if Super Tuesday didn't happen two days after the Carolina primary, when Biden won that victory after his trouncing at Nevada, the timing of that could have, if that had gone differently, who knows, right? But, um, yeah, no, there's, there's a, uh, there, there's definitely the sense of, of narrowness and I mean, I've, I've been able to bounce back from that before, you know, it happened in 2016. It happened after a lot of candidates I hoped would win in 2018. Didn't win Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum, you know, um, but you know, with, with, with activism, I've always sort of gone back and forth between really getting my hands dirty as far as I could manage in terms of knocking on doors and doing meeting stuff and then taking a break. And this election cycle still has quite a few months to go, you know, and I don't see myself wanting to dip my toes back in while um while while the wounds are still kind of raw over what the democratic establishment did maybe on local races but on on the national political scale i just don't uh call me fragile but i i can't i i just can't uh get too invested in it emotionally and so that is a sort of closing off of me from the life of the country, you know? So yeah, there's, there's a sense of, of withdrawal and uh, disconnection there. Can I tell you a story about my own life? Sure. So I went to college, um, and I left for college in 95, fall of 95, um, with very specific dreams and goals for my, what I wanted to do with my life. And I went to music school because I just, I loved music specifically. I loved records. I loved recorded music and I wanted that's what I wanted to do I wanted to make um I wanted to write and produce albums of of music that I that I created I wanted to be Peter Gabriel or David Bowie or something uh-huh. yeah and I there, there was a twin thing that confronted me is I started pursuing that path at a time, it wasn't a time of national disaster, but it was a time of industry disaster for the music industry. Completely, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. completely collapsed. You know, it was right after Napster, and it was right after, and there was just this worldwide decision 
that everybody decided that music should be free and you shouldn't have to pay for it. Yeah. And so everybody stopped buying CDs <laughs> and started pirating downloads. Yeah. And so the entire record industry went into a tailspin because nobody and the whole and so there just wasn't this whole thing that I wanted to do mm. of and when I was like all right well maybe I won't be a front man but I could be an arranger or I could be like something just didn't it didn't exist there were jobs that that weren't there anymore that had been there 5 years previously previously right so I and in the end it collided with a massive kind of bucket of cold water self-realization that even if I wasn't going to be Peter Gabriel, even if the music industry hadn't collapsed because I wasn't good enough. Mm. Right. Uh, I was okay, you know, yeah. but I wasn't that good. And so, But what came out of that, it took a long time for me to kind of work through that. And what I realize now was sort of grieving that on different levels and mm -hmm. trying things and being sort of mildly self-destructive and, and um, making weird choices about how I was going to spend my time. Um, oh, well, I want to know more about that. But. Well, just, just, you know, deciding to... Um, Deciding not to go in directions. Design of, have design have kids. <laughs> well, that was much later. But okay, okay. Uh, I mean, I I had kids twenty years after all of this began. This process began, but the um the um <laughs> I, I'm talking about the path of those twenty years between college and kids. <laughs> really, is what I'm trying to do here, which yeah. is is um you know, of like kind of running away from anything where I would actually be using skills that I had in a valuable mm -hmm. commercial way because I could still hold on to the dream that I would just right. burst forth from and everyone would say, wow, there, look at the genius emerges. But I, I yeah. couldn't do yeah. that if I was actually in a place where I my stuff was like... My, my abilities were being judged in a real professional marketplace. Yeah. So, yeah. but anyway, the, the point of all this was that I came out of that and what I'm doing now, the kind of work I'm doing now and the way I'm using my loves and my skills, my skills as a storyteller and as somebody who likes putting audio creations together and, and things like that. I think is so much more productive and interesting and useful mm, mm -hmm. than anything I was trying to do back then. Mm. And so even though, you know, all, all I'm trying to do is tell you that you're a talented, you're a smart and talented and interesting guy. And even if all of the doors close and lock that you're getting ready to walk through you are going to find a way to use those talents and build an interesting career for yourself that's all i was trying to say with that
Ah, uh, thank you so much. That's uh, well. I'm. I mean, what you're doing with this, <laughs> you know, you could be singing. Uh, you could be singing. Give peace a chance with all the celebrities, but you're doing so much more better work through this podcast by giving people a voice and giving people this, this outlet and this release. Um, I mean, this is really helping people what you're doing. And, uh, well, geez, thank you. you know, I, I hope so. you're finding uh, a connection. You know, you, you are, you are stepping up in this moment. You know, I, I thought I would be able to find research on the 1918 influenza and be like, Hey, look at me. I'm contributing to the moment. And, you know, I'm not doing that. You're, you are using your skills that you thought, you know, that, that you cultivated and that haven't gone to waste, but have been, you know, yeah, put in this direction. No, I mean, what, what I, I, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm thankful that you're saying this. I mean, the, the the so much of the problem with that with the academy is that it narrows you down and that it valorizes one career path as the only acceptable thing. And not only is that career path difficult to get at the best of times, but in your pursuit of it, you lose touch often with what motivated you in the first place to take it. And this economic disaster that the COVID is foisting on academics. They're like, we need to fund our schools. We need to tax the hell out of those who are getting unjustly enriched now, and put them into that system. But at the same time, we, we need to do like what you're saying. We need to, as early as possible, allow people to see where their roads can, where, where their lives can take them. And that didn't really happen to me. I wasn't as interested. I was very mono-focused, maybe, you know, along the lines, maybe you felt going in, you having that path. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm very happy that you were willing to share all that, actually. That you're willing to get so personal. Very, Absolutely. Uh, I think that's not, that's not easy to do. And that right there is a talent and a skill that I think a lot of academics are, are lacking is um, yeah. heart, <laughs> soul, maybe just ability to, to, you know, get deep and get soulful with a situation and open themselves up. I think that's, well, something you know, you I, I've, I've been, I've been going to therapy for a while. So, you know, I, I know how to, I know how to bring these, how to fake it. Or uh, bring it up for any ah! of these things. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, no, thanks no. for that. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, well, so... Um, <laughs> maybe that's an end line. <laughs> all right, yeah, we hit the button. I think I think that's hitting the button right there. That was... All right, thank you for talking to me, man. Take care of yourself, will you? You too. Have a good night. All right, man. Bye-bye. Bye. A couple of weeks after this was recorded, Daniel successfully defended his dissertation via Zoom meeting and is now Dr. Daniel London. My name is David, and this is The Big Shut-In. If you have feedback for me or a story that you would like to share, you can reach me at thebigshutin at racecarradio.com. 
This show is a production of Race Car Radio, a division of Citizen Race Car.